do stuff while you can, I guess. Because there's a fine line between can and can't, and you don't want to discover it on the wrong day. Right, I think. right. And that's one of the reasons that I did this now. I mean, even though I have spent some time travelling being depressed, and being depressed while you're travelling sucks, because you're away from everyone, everywhere. Yeah. But looking back on it, I don't regret it because I did get to see some incredible places and I'm still going to see some incredible places and I met some awesome people. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Carl. Hello, Carl. Hello. Yeah, so we're outside in uh, in London, down on the South Bank. It's a really sunny day. The f- first properly... Well, no, there's been a couple this week, but it's the f- it's, it's, this is summer, finally. Um, yeah, this is going to be an interesting one. Um, <laughs> so the first question I ask everybody is, how do you know me? Um, I met you at the uh, BBC Question Time watch along um, at the is it the Hackney, Hackney Attic? Yep, the Hackney, Hackney Attic, Attic yeah. um, which is run by my friend Nat Guest and we kind of started chatting and you mentioned you did this podcasty thing and I said oh that sounds interesting yeah and it kind of went from there yeah well I mean and I mean I I occasionally meet people and the first time I meet them I ask them to come on the show but it doesn't happen that often hmm. normally I'm like oh I'd like them to come on the show but I'll, I'll, I'll wait you know I'll wait a little longer you know so that it doesn't seem insane but you, you're not really in, in the country for very long. Not really, no. I'm kind of a wanderer at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and so the, the fact that you're a wanderer, I thought, well, that is definitely something I'd like to talk about on the show. Like, so I guess the second question that I ask people is, uh, what do you do now? Which kind of we're sort of touching on already. Yeah, stuff. Um, <laughs> I, on Facebook, I put uh, itinerant freelancer on my profile as my employment. So I'm currently travelling around the world is there and I'm back in Britain kind of halfway round or almost all the way around actually I started in Canada and I'm kind of uh, supporting myself as I travel by editing academic editing right okay well, let's cut that down you must get that question a lot I get that question a lot yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm like that with my day job I've got sure. it down to a tweet length yeah but this show is, is not a tweet length so let's uh, <laughs> let's unpack it oh, I thought we were done <laughs> yeah that's right that's <laughs> uh, conversation over so when did you start travelling the world um, in December last year so okay. December 2012 yeah. wow okay um, so yeah I was living in Kingston Ontario at the time in Canada I was working as a um, postdoctoral research fellow at Queen's University um, I had a PhD in psychology I was working on motor control neuroscience reaching movements and I kind of went it's time for a break uh, essentially um, and decided I would throw half my savings into plane tickets and just go wandering for a while wow essentially okay <laughs> So I guess, like, so you, to become a, a, a an academic psychologist, I guess is that right? Uh, you, you, I guess you, you went to university, and uh-huh. that was was that the plan to to become one of those? Um, I'm not the best with plans, to be honest. <laughs> uh, I I never knew what I wanted to do. Um, I'm still not sure. I went to university and studied physics originally. Um, I'm not sure why. <laughs> it seemed to be kind of a toss-up between physics and chemistry, and I didn't kind of want to spill things on my hands, so I ended up doing physics instead. Did fairly well. Uh, got a first. That was nice. But my fourth-year undergrad, because I had a four-year kind of um, undergrad master's kind of program at Nottingham. Fourth-year undergrad, I was like... Do I want to keep doing this? Do I, want to do I don't know what I want to do. All my friends were getting jobs in the financial services industry because that's what you do when you get a physics degree unless you want to do something um, connected to physics. And I didn't really want to do that. So I was looking around for other possibilities and I've always been interested in the brain and how the brain works. So um, I actually looked this up. So I know how old I was. I was 13. It was 1994. And an aunt of mine had sent me a year subscription to National Geographic. And there was an article in National Geographic in 1994 called Quiet Miracles of the Brain. And it was really interesting because it was talking about all this interesting kind of neurology stuff that I didn't really know much about. But there was one story in it that kind of stuck with me, which was um, there was a kid who played the violin. He had severe epilepsy, I think it was. um, And he uh, had to have surgery for it and got hemispherectomy. So he had half of his brain removed. Um, And he could still play the violin afterwards. 
and I was blown away by this at 13 because I played the violin and I was like what how is that even possible so that kind of sparked an interest in how the brain worked really um, so when it came to kind of trying to figure out after my physics degree what I was going to do um, I managed to find a PhD going in physics and psychology in Nottingham that was kind of half run by the physics department half run by the psychology department no one wanted to take it because psychologists find it very hard to transition to physics because of all the maths um, and physicists don't, aren't usually the types of people who want to go into psychology but this was kind of taking neuroimaging and doing some kind of motor control, reaching movement stuff in psychology. Um, so I went for a quick interview and was basically offered it, which was very cool. Just checking that I didn't knock it off record. It's an interesting summer wind coming and going on and aeroplanes yeah. at the same time. So, so you took that course? Yep. I started looking at reaching movements and um, basically how the brain controls the body, which was... Um, topic that the lab I was in was interested in basically and it's not because I chose the topic it's just that that happened to I just happened to fall into it really yeah. and so I started learning about predictive control the arm is a is an incredibly complex piece of machinery and controlling it is not an easy task like if you think about talking uh, about uh, complicated machinery this yeah. is not complicated machinery but it's still not working it's still fun we're really. sticking right. it in the ground a bit harder yeah that's a good, good idea there you go that's a <laughs> Somebody with an idea about how the world works, uh, rather ish, than me. Ish. There we go. That's physics of it sorted out. Yeah, get the physics <laughs> of the microphone sorted. There we go. Okay, so yeah. the arm. The arm is a very complex piece of machinery. If you think about what an arm looks like, if you just, if you just ignore the hand, the hand's even more complex. Think about what an arm looks like. An arm is kind of two rods, like one from the shoulder to the elbow, one from the el elbow to the wrist, basically. Yeah. And just to move those rods, you have a hinge joint at the elbow, and you have a ball and socket joint in the shoulder. And just with that kind of movement, you already have five degrees of freedom. If you move in five different directions, you have five different ways to try and control this thing. Now add that to the fact that you're not just controlling it, you're controlling the joint directly. You're controlling these muscles that actually pull on each joint. So you have muscles that pull on just the elbow, muscles that pull the shoulder in one direction, muscles that pull both the elbow and the shoulder in one sure, direction. Yeah. And it's, if you think about that, it's a ridiculous system, a ridiculously complicated system for a controller to actually make work. So it presents a really interesting problem for people who are interested in kind of solving interesting, complicated systems, which I started to be one of those people, basically. So I started looking at various problems in the field of motor control um, and got my PhD in motor control, which was very cool. Um, and then I ended up getting a postdoc in Birmingham. So I spent three years in Birmingham doing the same kind of thing with, in a similar lab, basically, using robotic systems to uh, produce kind of forces on the arm. So you could learn by, say, reaching forward and your arm being pushed in a particular direction, and you can learn to compensate for that force. So you, you can kind of figure out, well, how is this controller performing these calculations just by looking at the pattern of learning, essentially. And if you tweak the experiments in clever little ways, you can rule out certain ways that the, the control system learns to do things and say, oh, well, this must be this sort of way. So that was the kind of thing we were doing, basically. Okay, and so how many how many years did you do that? So I was three years in Birmingham, and then Birmingham funding came to an end, and I was looking to do something different. So I was still looking in research, still looking for postdocs, research positions to take, and I found one in Canada. I had been in Canada my third year undergrad. I spent at the University of Toronto, which is an amazing town. Um, I had a really good time there, and I'd always wanted to go back to Canada. So when I I talked to a guy who was high up in the field who was working in Kingston, Ontario, which is a couple of hours out of Toronto, um, and chatted to him at a couple of conferences, and eventually he phoned me up and offered me a job, which is very nice. Um, so I moved to Canada in September of 2009 to start a postdoc doing some more computational neuroscience. Right. So what I've doing before was what you would call behavioral neuroscience. So behavioral neuroscience, you do a behavioral experiment, you measure human behavior and use that to infer the way the brain is making decisions or performing control of the task that you're doing. Computational neuroscience is more making computational models of how the brain is making these decisions. That's what I was getting more interested in. Okay, so you're time. looking at the brain rather than what the brain does in the body. So yes. Specifically yeah. at the brain. Pretty much. Well, I mean, what the brain does in the body is send signals. That's yeah. pretty much it. it. It takes in stuff from outside and processes it and sends stuff to outside essentially that's what a, that's what the brain does collates and send things out and it's actually quite interesting there's there's a bit of 
there's always a bit of controversy in the field about how much the brain does and how much other body systems do. So, for example, there's a big spinal cord contingent who think the spinal cord is much more important than some people think it is. Um, I've got a friend actually working in Sweden who's started finding evidence that even the, the fingertips, for example, when you when you touch something, when you um, kind of r- run your finger along, say, like the seam of my jeans, for example, you can feel different changes in the texture and ridges and bumps, and you can feel what that feels like. Um, and what he's suggesting is that a lot of that processing actually goes on in the fingers okay. or in the nerves, the, the sensory nerves, like the peripheral sensory nerves out in the hand as opposed to being so centrally processed. The fingertips are saying, this is what it feels like, yeah. reporting that to the reporting brain, to the brain exactly. than the brain going, this is what yeah. that, those things So, so it's okay. the question, how much of that stuff is being done peripherally and how much of it is being done centrally, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. So how much distributed kind of cognition do we have through the body and how much of it is all kind of just like up, up here, essentially up in the brain. So um, I was really interested in that kind of stuff, and I got kind of really into it. But a few things went wrong. So I moved to a new country, which was cool, but I didn't really know anybody. Um, A few days after I arrived, my gran died, which was really sad. Um, And I was kind of, I was like 10 days into a new country, and kind of, oh, it's exciting, and boom, suddenly, like, gran died, and I was kind of thrown off. I was living in a decent little place. Uh, it It wasn't too far from everywhere. But it was very weird to kind of get started in, in a new culture. Canadian culture is different from British culture in some particular ways, which we should go into later. Um, and it's one of those horrible little culture shock things that if you have never lived abroad, it's really hard to, to kind of conceptualize. But it's... I was having this conversation with a friend who lives in Japan, and he said, yeah, it shouldn't be called culture shock. Culture shock's a misnomer, because it should really be called culture creep. Because what really happens is you've been somewhere a couple of years, you've figured out the big, crazy, different things, and you think you're sorting yourself out and everything's going well, and suddenly, boom, you get hit with the fact you've been doing something wrong for two years, you didn't even know it. Ah, right, okay. It's crept up on you, and you suddenly feel foreign and disoriented and not part of the culture anymore. Now, English-speaking cultures are a lot easier to assimilate into than, say, Japanese, which is what he was trying to do. Yeah. But it's still tricky, so it's it's a learning curve and it's work to get yourself assimilated into even, even Canadian culture. So one of the other things I had trouble with was meeting people and making friends in Kingston. And Kingston is an amazing town if you're a student because you come in with a bunch of other people. It's a pretty isolated place. You come in and you have your cohort and you go through your course with them and you do have fun times and then you all leave. But Kingston only really has three employers. It has the university, it has the military college, and it has the six prisons. So it's a very transient town in many, many ways. Um, And as a postdoc, you're coming in from the outside, basically, to do a job for a couple of years. You're a contract researcher. You're coming in blind without any cohort, without any bunch of people to move with, unless you're moving with a family, which is great. And it's very isolating, especially even if you're not even Canadian. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's very lonesome, which is kind of how I felt. So I had that happen. I had um, my grand die. It was a horrible personal thing that happened. Just general getting sorted out in the culture. And then... I had another horrible thing happen, which was the PhD student I was supposed to work with on the computational neuroscience stuff got sick. So he was off work for 18 months. In the meantime, I was shunted onto projects that I wasn't really passionate about, not really interested in. Um, I broke up with my long-distance girlfriend, um, who was living in London while I was here, basically. Uh, Here, Kingston, rather. I'm in London now. (laughs) And so kind of four or five things just kind of hit me at the same time, basically, which made it incredibly difficult for me to enjoy what I was doing and appreciate why I was even there and why I was doing it. But if, if you have that kind of experience, though, what makes you decide, rather than to come home to what you know and what's safe, to then go out and explore other places? Well, there's a couple of things, really. I'd, I'd spent... I spent three years in Kingston, by the way, but I really should only have spent two at the most. I really should have just cut my losses and gone. But I got a, um, I got a fellowship, which, um, for people not familiar with how the academic system works, one, when you have a PhD, you work as a postdoc, you can you do one of two things, really. You can work on someone's grant. So they, like the principal investigator, the professor writes a grant um, that says, oh, I want two postdocs, and then they find good postdocs to fit that grant. Or you can write a fellowship, which means you independently, with the guidance of somebody else, usually the professor you want to work with, applies to a funding agency and says, oh, I want to do this work, I'm, I'll be good at it, give me the money. And that's really prestigious and quite nice, and I'd written one of those and I got it. Um, and it was in a bit more clinical work, which I still really wasn't as interested in as the computational stuff. So I was kind of like, well, I've got this money, I may as well stay here, I'm being paid, you know, it's, it's, it's a thing that, it's a good thing, it's a prestigious thing, it's going to, you know, hopefully revigorate my interest, and it really didn't, unfortunately. 
So that's why I stayed there as long as I did. But as to why I kind of didn't want to just come home to Britain, it's... I don't know. I think there's a few reasons. The first reason is I... I had applied for permanent residence in Canada because I'd really enjoyed living there. Like I, I enjoyed living there, I enjoyed the culture, and it wasn't really for the first year or so things started going bad, and, and, and I was already in the process of, of applying for this thing. Yeah. So I have permanent residence in Canada, and if I stay away too long, I'll take it away. The nice thing about permanent residence is I can go and get a job in Canada. Like I can just move there now if I want, and just right. just immigrate. So I've already immigrated. I've already done that. Yeah. Um, I just have to go there um, and find work. And if I stay there another two years, I get citizenship. And having a base in North America to work from or in, in Europe would be fantastic. Just being able to go anywhere I wanted and do those jobs, which would be yeah. really, really fun. The second reason is I really wanted to travel. Because I travelled about ten years ago. I travelled across Canada, I travelled across um, Eastern Europe, and I had a lot of fun. And I hadn't done that in, like, nine years. I'd come back and start my PhD in Nottingham and done that for three years and done my postdoc in Birmingham for three years and then done a postdoc in Canada for three years and I really kind of wanted to go places and go yeah. other places other than Canada because I was shuttling back and forth a lot between the UK and Canada even while I was there seeing my friends and family so I wanted to travel I hit 31 and all my friends if, if anybody has Facebook they will know that uh, around this age Facebook is basically wall-to-wall babies sure um, <laughs> I am 31 like, right then it is, it is. <laughs> it's ridiculous it's, all like, um, it's lovely it's very nice. I'm glad the human race is continuing. Yeah. But it really is just full of babies. It's all babies, marriages. <laughs> marriages like, there's a lot yeah. of marriages. The last couple of years, it's been like loads yeah. and loads of marriages, yeah. and then quickly after quickly babies. After babies, yeah. Or yeah. people are splitting up because it's the, well, it's the crunch time. It's, it's interesting, time. actually. Uh, there's two waves I find of <clears throat> weddings: one just after university years, and one just around thirty. Yeah, right. They're the two main waves. Yeah, that's um, right. I've recently, like literally two weeks ago, I heard about first couple in. Whose wedding I went to, who were yeah. breaking up, um, which is very sad. They're both lovely people. Apparently, yeah. it's very amicable, but it's still very sad. You know, it was a brilliant wedding as well. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's that time of life. It's that kind of thing where people are starting to go, "Am I settling down now? Am I having kids? Am I going to do something?" And I mean, I'm not with anyone at the moment. I may well be with someone at some point. That would sure. be nice. I would yeah. quite like to have kids. Maybe at some point that would be nice. Um, not right the second, but. It does mean that now is a good time to do this stuff. Because now I have a bit of money. I can travel and I understand things a lot better than I did 10 years ago. The thing about traveling when you're 20 is you don't really know anything, so everything's exciting. Um, when you travel when you're 30-something, it's easier in some ways because you understand things a bit better. But in some ways, I don't know, I wonder through this traveling that I've done whether it's less exciting because just because I've been really depressed in the last couple of years and I'm just coming out of that whether it's less exciting just because that's a function of being a bit older and having yeah. seen a lot more stuff than right. you had at 20 basically um, and having lived in other countries as well I think that is I mean that is the thing that like when, when you approach things in your 30s you're doing it with all of this knowledge that you've built yeah. up which is great but it means that there, there isn't that excitement of learning new things new things yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like you do, you do stupid things that you look back at, like in your twenties and at your early twenties, and you go, "Now I would never make that mistake." No. But that mistake might have led to some brilliant well, that, times. I think that you mistake, know, well, thing. not only led to brilliant times, but also made you who you are in many ways. Yeah, right. Because you know right. you won't make that mistake again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I've mostly been, yeah, I've mostly been out of trouble while traveling, which is very boring. Um, but I've seen a lot of really fun things, so. Yeah, I guess I wanted to do it just so I... Because I knew I would regret it in 30 years' time. Yeah. I mean, I'm young enough not to really have any health, medical problems. Um, I can still drink a fair amount and, like, do fun things. But I'm also, like, not too young that I'll get into really stupid, crazy escapades and yeah. regret them. And, I don't know, be, wake up one, one morning in, I don't know, on a boat somewhere <laughs> and yeah. go okay why am I in the Pacific now this was not part of the part of the <laughs> well, you, you say regardless that now, of whether that's you say fun. that now it'll be unfortunate if like next if that month that happens, happens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. captured by Somalian pirates so you've had a lot of fun I have had a lot of fun it's been really interesting it's been different I've had a lot of fun but I've also been kind of oh this is work in some ways yeah I planned my route before I went so I dumped like half my savings on flights basically plotted a route which started in Kingston and will if not end in Kingston will end in Canada I'll be passing back through Kingston hopefully in the next couple of months right. um, just to kind of say I've gone all the way around basically yeah. from there I was concerned about money 
as I was traveling. So I kind of wondered what I could do to not be so concerned about that. And I had quite a bit of savings before I left. But of course, as you travel, you run those things down. So I tried the best I could to travel without spending very much money. I did really, really well my first month, which was busing across North America. If you don't count the buses, I spent $220 the entire month, Good. which is very, very little. Yeah. And I did that by basically staying with a lot of friends and by couch surfing occasionally and things like that. So couch surfing is a really fun, cheap and fairly easy way of getting around the world by staying with places. Because usually, aside from the transport, the most expensive stuff you do, you do is pay for accommodation. Do if you could get out of paying for accommodation... Yeah. Pretty well. Do you always know the people who you're going to stay with then, or just no. sometimes you just like say, "Hey, I'm coming. Is, is anybody around this area? Does anybody know anybody?" Or whatever. Sometimes it depends where you are. So North America had a lot of luck with saying, "Hey, who who lives in this town?" And usually I'd know someone who lives in this town, or I'd know a friend of a friend who would put me up, and that was great. But sometimes I'll just be like, "No one, no, no one knew anybody," so I'd have to go online, and go to the couchsurfing website, couchsurfing.org, oh, okay. um, and find it, messaging people and saying, "Hello, uh, can I stay with you? I'm nice." And they usually say, yes, yes, you can. You are nice. And that's usually how it works. Well, that's good. I mean, the internet has allowed the that to happen. Amazing. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, that sort of thing. I guess that's, that, that's the funny thing that the internet makes it easier to travel around the world physically yeah. as well as just online. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's not It's not even just staying places, it's ride shares as well, which are getting more popular now. Like, go on Craigslist and find ride shares or Gumtree um, or whatever the markup site is of choice. And so I did quite a bit of that. One of my best travel stories, actually, is from a rideshare in California that I, that I went on, which was so bizarre, but a lot of fun. <laughs> what, what, what is that? Would you like me to tell you the story? Yeah, why not? So, I was in Portland, Oregon, in the western US, and I was staying with a guy from couch surfing, and I was trying to find a way to get out to San Francisco. So I was flying out of LA a week or so later, and I wanted to go down to San Francisco, spend a few days in San Francisco, and then head down to LA and fly out to Fiji. That was my next destination. So I messaged a couple of people on Craigslist, and this one guy got back to me and said, yeah, yeah, we can come pick you up. Yeah, be ready for like 8 a.m., 8 a.m. We're going to be pretty early. So so we'll say 9 a.m., but be ready for 8. So I was like, <laughs> okay, fine. So I, I get up at 7, 7.45 and I hang out, and it's 8 o'clock, and it's 8.30, and it's 9, he hasn't shown up yet. It doesn't show up to kind of 9.30, 9.45. <laughs> And he says, he says, oh, I'm, I'm almost here. Sorry, we had some trouble in Seattle. He's texting me. I was like, okay, cool. So I go down to the front door and I meet the guy for the first time. Um, he's called Jack. He's six foot three, um, wearing uh, dungarees, bright orange dreadlocks, um, and a nose ring, and lots of tattoos. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be an interesting trip. Lovely guy, lovely guy. We get on very, very well. So he's like, yeah, sorry, we set off from Seattle really early this morning, but there's a couple of accidents along the way. We didn't get in them was a pain to point out but there were some accidents so, uh, sorry we were late so, okay fine so we walked to the van for it is a van not a car I thought it was a car but no it was a van and it wasn't like a little camper van it was a big van kind of a I know I'm not very good with vans it's a big van basically yeah, I'm kind of it, there were, so two seats in the front and then kind of a bench seat with, with three people in the back and then a whole huge back portion as well wow, okay. basically yeah so a big van so I get in the van into the bench seat and there's a girl sitting there and I said, hello, how's it going? She says, hello, my name's Augustine. I said, hello, I'm Carl. Nice to meet you. She's nice. She's a student from uh, Humboldt College, which is in Northern California. And then the driver turns around and she's topless. Right. Wow. And she says, hello, I'm Joe. I said, hello, I'm Carl. Like, this is different. <laughs> um, like, this is going to be an interesting trip, I was thinking. And Augustine's already kind of going, yeah, it is going to be interesting because she's been driving with them a bit already from Seattle. Right. Like, okay. So fine. she's already acclimatised yeah. to, exactly. to the interestingness. So picking up a few people in Portland, we pick up an Australian girl called Chelsea when I was in, uh, when we were in, yes, in, somewhere in Portland, who I actually met up with again when I went to Australia, which was great. Then we picked up three guys, one of whom, three young guys, one of whom knew Joe, and then we picked up a tattoo artist called uh, Sparrow, his name was, in, I think Salem, Oregon. Um, yeah, he, he just been dumped by his fiance, or he just dumped his fiance because she cheated on him or something like that after three years and mo- was moving back to San Francisco today. He was getting wow. a ride show back to San Francisco with, with his tattooing kit, uh, which was cool. <laughs> and so that was the nine of us. And then uh, Joe and Jack spotted a hitchhiker by the side of the road with a sign that just said South. <laughs> so like, oh, we could fit another one in. Now, bear in mind that we've already filled all the seats and there's four people in the back. And so we grab this guy and we throw him in the back as well, basically. Right. So um, yeah, he's called Bruce. Um, he's a bit older and claims to be ex-military. Right. Which is interesting. 
So, so quite so, an interesting collection. An interesting collection people. of people, yeah. yes. And so we set off down south to San Francisco. Now, there's a couple of ways you can get to San Francisco. You can go, I think the I-5 is the major highway, and that takes about nine, eight or nine hours. So I was expecting we would get there kind of that evening, basically. I had some friends I was going to stay in San Francisco, and I told them, okay, we should get in maybe around seven or eight-ish tonight, because uh, we'd left about ten. Maybe a little bit later. Um, it was not to be. Hmm. I, sh- I should mention, by the way, five minutes after we set off, the thrash metal came on, incredibly loud thrash metal, um, and the joints started to be passed around. Right. I, I declined on this occasion. I was like, I want to actually keep my head around me at this point. Um, I, I think that's sensible. wise. Yeah. <laughs> sensible. Didn't stop everybody else, including the driver. So... Yeah. <laughs> So we, we drive down, and I'm like, this is, this is interesting already. Okay, well, you know, I'm getting a ride to San Francisco. Fantastic. What do you expect? So we get about two hours, maybe, down the motorway. We get to just past a little town called Roseburg, Oregon, and that's, of course, when the van breaks down, because the van had just been bought that morning it's in Seattle. It's apparently, long story short, because this could go on just for the, the, whole, <laughs> for the, the whole, whole podcast yeah, yeah. and the rest of, like, all the rest of your podcast. Basically, it broke down. Uh, steering wheel fluid had to be fixed, power steering fluid, and all sorts of things had to be fixed. And so, while things were being fixed, I was like, well, let's go to the bar, because, you know, we're in a place with a bar. And then it turned out that most people in the van weren't old enough to drink, so it's America, and you have to be 21. Right. So, there's only four of us that are legally allowed to drink, uh, not including Joe the driver, who it turns out is 19. That's, that's probably. I mean, he <laughs> probably, probably shouldn't be drinking. Yeah. No, no, she probably she? shouldn't be drinking. Oh, yeah, no, topless nineteen-year-old girl driver. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> that was interesting. So, me and Augustine and Chelsea and Sparrow go to the bar and have a few drinks. And finally, Jack calls and said, "Yeah, they're not going to have the party here till tomorrow, so you have, we're going to have to get a motel for the night." That's one of the few nights I spent in accommodation. Next day, part arrives. We don't set off till two. People have bought some beer on the way back. People start drinking the beer in the van, including the driver. And at this point, I finally said, no, I don't, I don't think I'm comfortable with this. I will take that from you at this point, because that is a little bit much, yeah. to be honest. Sure. I mean, other things happened, including running out of fuel, luckily just over the intersection from a gas station. So imagine this. We're just over the intersection from a petrol station. Joe is pumping the gas pedal frantically. He said, it's not moving, it's not moving. The light goes green. Five guys jump out the back of the van and push it across the intersection to oh, the petrol wow. station to claps and cheers from onlookers. There was the time we almost ran out of gas in the middle of Northern California in the dark with a tiny gas station with no, no attendant and just a kind of a credit card slot. Of course, most people didn't have credit cards. My credit card was Canadian, so it didn't work. And if it wasn't for the, the carload full of strippers who pulled up, <laughs> um, who had cash in exchange for... We gave them cash in exchange for using their credit sure, card, we'd yeah. have been stuck there. So... It was an interesting ride, yeah. <laughs> shall we say. And that's probably the fun, most fun and random thing that's happened to me. On yeah, the kind of very, yeah, yeah it's very, <laughs> that's a very cinematic, kind of classic American road trip. Well. A, I, I was, I was blogging everything that I was doing ah. as I travelled, so I have a blog up about... As I said, that's the most interesting story. Aside, maybe from when I was in North Korea, that was interesting. Okay. Um, I was in the, only in North Korea very briefly, at the, uh, in the, the DMZ, the um, Demilitarized Zone, north of South Korea, basically. Yeah. You can just step over the border briefly. Yeah, I've got a friend table, who's so. done it. Yeah, it's really cool, actually. But, yeah, aside from that, and that was a tour, that was a planned tour, you know, not... Um, but any planned tour where you have to sign waivers where stating that in the... In the case of hostilities breaking out, the US government is not liable for you dying. Right. Um, is a pretty, pretty creepy tour, anyway. Yeah, it's a very, pretty full on tour. Yeah. Pretty much. Pretty yeah. much. So, yeah. I mean, so you, you're, lit- <laughs> you, you're literally going round the world. Yeah, like- I went west. Sorry, I should explain the route a bit more, really. So, I went, um, I bust across the states, the northern US mostly, uh, then down the west coast, got ride shares mostly, and then flew to Fiji. New Zealand, Australia, Singapore, Malaysia, Japan, Korea, and then I got back to the UK about three and a half weeks ago. Yeah. And then I'm off to Iceland on Saturday. Oh, wow. I've always wanted there. to go to Iceland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not far. You should go. No, I know. Expensive but... alcohol, though, I've heard. Yeah, um, that's what I've So I'm heading to... I'm trying to set up couchsurfing uh, people in Iceland to talk to. Then I'll be flying to New York. I've got some friends in Florida who want to see me, so they're going to try and fly me down. And then I need to head up to Canada again and, like, I want to see Prince Edward Island and Newfoundland. I've never been up to kind of northeast Canada before, so that'll be fun. And then kind of wander back westwards and maybe find a real job. Who knows? So that'll be nice. (laughs) It doesn't matter how well you set up a a microphone by pushing it into the ground. If you pull it, it physics, well, gravity will beat you in the end. Lots of motion stuff. You've almost travelled all the way around the world. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have. I mean, what 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 is that? 
what have you, I mean, what, what, what has that been like? What have you like kind of learned, I guess, or what have you noticed about the differences between places? I've noticed there's a lot of similarities between places, although it depends where you are. The thing is that a lot of the countries I just mentioned are actually British colonies, which I didn't realise for a long time. I didn't yeah. realise that I'd just accidentally booked a lot of British colonies. I mean, part of the reason I went to New Zealand and Australia because I'd always wanted to go to New Zealand and Australia and I had friends there. I went to Fiji because it was on the way and I was told that it's nice and you should go there and oh, if you fly there, it's actually no more expensive. If you fly there for a few days and then fly out to New Zealand, it's actually no more expensive than just flying straight to New Zealand. So, well, well, I may as well take the trip there. Yeah. Singapore and Malaysia, I have friends in Malaysia I stayed with. Um, some, uh, my friend, actually Kirsten, I did my PhD with at the same time um, as her. Uh, she went out to work at the University of Nottingham in Malaysia because the University of Nottingham has a campus in Malaysia for right. some reason. And then I've always wanted to go to... Uh, I've been to Japan before, but only to Okinawa, which is kind of a tropical island a bit south of Japan. Okay. I wanted to go to real Japan. I wanted to go in cherry blossom season. Okay. So I went there in March. And that was where, where did you go to? In Japan? Oh, all over. I started in Tokyo, and I just went west. I went all the way down to Kagoshima, which is really south southwest Kyushu. So, yeah, lots of places. Hiroshima was pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, really, if you go one place ever in your life... Go to the Peace Museum in Hiroshima because it's phenomenal. Okay. Yeah, it's so interesting. Japan was just gorgeous and cherry blossoms. I went to Japan when I was uh, 15 on a school exchange trip for uh, 10 days. I went to Kyoto and I was in a small village called Makuni. Oh, cool. uh, Kyoto's very nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, very... But but for me as a 15-year-old, it was very... uh, It was so fascinating. Yeah. Like, Like, culturally, so different. It's still so different. Um, yeah, and in so many on. different ways, though. Like, because yeah. there's like all of these ancient Japanese, like we went to like mod, you know monasteries and gardens and, and all of those kind of places. But then, of course, I was in the school with the kids, yeah. so you yeah. know we were like going down to the to the uh, arcades and like it was you know the, the computerized element, the uh, the futuristic element of Japan was all around me as well. Yeah, it's Japan's a fascinating place. I mean. It, it has this, as you say, it has this kind of twin element of being very ancient and very modern at the same yeah. time. But scratching the surface, it's a little bit more complicated than that as well. A lot of the ancient stuff was actually rebuilt after the Second World War because right. the whole country was just firebombed to death. And the two cities completely destroyed by the time. Like Hiroshima Castle, for example, was destroyed completely and rebuilt in the 60s. But a lot of the places that look ancient and beautiful were actually reconstructed no. with the help of the Americans like after the war. As for the modern stuff... That's also slightly misleading in some cases. Like, the trains are amazing, for example. The trains are absolutely phenomenal. I have never been to a place, even Germany, the trains are good in Germany, <laughs> where the trains are so good. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, I was just blown away by them. The toilets, as everyone knows, are also hilarious and, and um, mechanised yeah. and stuff, which yeah. is very fun. But there's definitely a lot of attitudes that don't seem all that modern. No, um, absolutely that's, right. That's yeah, really, yeah, yeah. That, to me, that's very interesting. So... Um, What's true in a lot of Asian countries is losing face is a really bad thing um, and being rude and kind of breaking out the confines of society in some ways is, especially in Japan, a very, very bad thing. The Japanese have a saying, which is, uh, the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. Wow. Which basically tells you how much they prize kind of, in many ways, conformity and, and yeah, kind of sticking that, to what you, what you like, should do. That in, sounds like a society. description of my uh, secondary school life. Really? Yeah. <laughs> in Japan? No, in real, in in this country. Oh, in this country, like, yeah. Being I was the say. Nail that well, out, it's funny you should say down, that. that was it's funny you should like... say that because one of the countries that I thought was most similar to Japan that I've ever visited is England. I know what you mean. <laughs> Here's kind of how I started thinking about this. Japan is an island. Was isolated for a long time. One of the biggest differences between England and Japan is that England actually had an empire, and yeah. I'll say England and not Britain. Because although it was the British Empire, it was England that really was in in charge of it in many ways. And um, it was the English Empire in many, many ways. Um, And Japan tried to have an empire, which didn't last very long. But both pretty isolationist. It's what happens when you have islands with a distinct culture. Japanese are not very fond of foreigners. As I'm sure you're aware, there's been quite a few issues with immigration here. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. The Japanese aren't very fond of foreigners, although I would say they are very uh, eager to learn English. Yes. So you to could, a point. Yeah. To a point, yes. Or, or at least they were in the context the of thing is, where I was. People are very friendly and welcoming. Very friendly and welcoming. But I was told by expats who live in Japan that it really gets wearing sometimes, just because you know, there is a lot of anti-foreigner sentiment. Yeah, I believe that. Even if it's not vocally expressed, especially around the foreigners. Although if foreigners can speak good Japanese, they often hear comments and stuff in yeah. the street. And, I couldn't... Well, I couldn't 
mostly, it's mostly Americans and British it. people who go and teach English there. They're the people I was staying with most of the time. And it, so they, they said it's really interesting because they come from places where they're the majority, like white English and Brits. They're, they're the majority, and suddenly they're thrust into this culture where they're the mon- minority now. Yeah. And they said it's really eye-opening in terms of what it's like to live in that, in a different culture where you are suddenly, you know, not the dominant yeah, species, absolutely. if that makes sense. And it was what was really interesting about the whole Japanese British thing was I was chatting to an American that I'd met there, and I basically said, "So, yeah, I, th- I think I think Japan's quite like Britain in some ways." She said, "Well, I don't really know about that, but I do know that the people who stay in Japan the longest are the Brits. Yes. All the Americans want to get out after two years. Yeah. The Brits stay there and sometimes live there." Well, our, our culturally speaking, in the UK or at least in England, there is definitely the same sort of kind of polite yeah. codes. To li- like it's much you more can appreciate people when, who follow now, the rules yeah. basically there are rules there are always rules yeah. um, there's a brilliant book by Kate Fox an anthropologist called Kate Fox called Watching the English um, and it's about the hidden rules of English behaviour um, and I love it I think it's brilliant I really read it every time I can find it because it's just so much fun and she goes into queuing she looks at bumping into people in the street and saying sorry yeah. <laughs> and, and the class system of course which you can't live without and different words for things based on what social class you are yeah. so whether you call it a sofa or a settee yeah. or a couch yeah, yeah, yeah. for example which you tell North Americans this and they're like that's crazy <laughs> but it's normal to us that's just how it is you know what class someone is pretty much by where they're from not by how much money they have which That's is very right. different and Japan is a very has a, has a class system as well and, and it very much does and yeah. I don't know it's, it's not the same at all by any stretch of the imagination but I think some of the similarities are very comfortable for British people and I certainly found it dealable with I think a lot of the Americans are just frustrated because of the lack of perceived individuality Right. Americans are very big into you know be your own person, be individual, don't conform, and the Japanese are completely opposite to that. I think my favourite quote about Japanese and the Americans is definitely I can't remember who it's by, which is terrible. But, um, watching the Japanese and Americans together is an amazing experience because one culture thinks everyone wants to be like them, and the other culture thinks no one can ever be like them. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah, well, that was as a 15-year-old going to Japan into their school system and sort of like experiencing their school life yeah I was definitely like shocked by how like I could see what I sort of felt at the time and you know who knows if I think this now or even if it's like this now it's 15 years later but like it was that you could see the kind of the left leftoverness of the kind of military culture like at the break time everyone cleaned the school like that's what you did wow. during the break. Everyone had cloths and and I like, think that cleaned still their so yeah sure and cleaned their happens, stripe yeah. of the hall. Yeah. Like every and they had fun. They was they were yeah, sliding yeah. all around on those. Uh, that I did too, but but it was you know it was it was a kind of formalized fun time. Yeah, and it was the same. Like they didn't go. There was like what we have in this country now, I guess more and more. But they had like after school clubs. Like you yes. did sports. You didn't get to go home. Well, for a yeah. long time. Well, this is part of the culture as well. So, one of the biggest problems, I don't know if I don't know if say problems, or one of the, certainly one of the biggest differences is the length of the working, the working day. Yeah. A lot of Japanese people will go to work at eight and then come home at seven, or go to work at eight, leave work at seven, have a few drinks with their friends, yeah. get really drunk, go home, go to sleep. Yeah. Six days a week. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why Japanese women are expected these days still to quit their jobs when they get married. Because someone's got to take care of the kids. <laughs> and if you have both parents working in that kind of environment, literally nobody can. But, I mean, partially, that's why kids stay so long at school as well. Yeah, that may, I mean, and that's why, that's why kids are staying longer and longer at school now in this country. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why the government are talking about getting rid of holidays and stuff like this, is to yeah. help, help, in inverted commas, uh, people deal with their children. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I thought I would think that's not very well planned. No way. I mean, I'm not a supporter of the government or, or that kind of policy, but that, that is, I guess, what they're doing it for. And I guess that's the interest of the kind of economy yeah. kind of being more important than the interest of the, of the children. Well, if I'm honest, that's one of the reasons I don't want to be in Britain, Britain right now. Because yeah. it seems there's a lot of great stuff going on here, to be honest. Um, and if right. I have the opportunity to work in Canada, which is a growing economy with, even though with a majority Conservative government, doesn't seem to be having as like ridiculous reforms as there are going on here right so, right yeah that's yeah absolutely reasonable <laughs> i think it's fairly reasonable <laughs> no i mean I, I i i quite often me and my partner uh we sort of talk about like where do we go 
like if it keeps getting this bad like where, where do we go that we can like easily assimilate into and yeah. like not have our lives particularly change Canada's nice what skills do you have skills um I don't know what they skills like we have they like skills we're, huh they like skills yeah, we're, 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 we're skillless in that we're we're both writers and artist types good luck so, exactly. <laughs> skillless yeah, I, I was lucky enough. I mean, I, I have all this this PhD and all this technical knowledge and things like that. And so that was for immigrating. That was obviously a huge bonus because they really want people with all those kinds of technical skills. Because yeah, regardless I, of what job I end up doing, I've always got those skills to fall back on. If yeah, I, need them, I mean, I so. guess it's like that. People talk about uh, one of the things that people talk about when they're talking about immigration is brain drain. Like the most yeah. intelligent people yeah. from the countries being taken from. Well, usually country. because they can. Yeah. Exactly. And the, the thing is that the whole, there's a lot of older people in um, British universities work in British universities like between 50 and 60 because 20 years ago a lot of the people who would have filled the positions 20 years ago like the 20 somethings all left yeah yeah that makes sense I mean so so you basically you went through a lot of ex-British colonies so I guess yeah basically which is quite fun you've sort of seen the legacy of the empire yes pretty much and it's been fascinating fascinating to watch yeah Fiji's a really fun place people of Fiji are so nice Fijians do not have any concept of being on time in fact they specifically refer to it as Fiji time meaning everybody's at least 10 minutes late for everything and that's okay Wow. and I I enjoyed drinking Carvo when I was in Fiji which is a traditional drink they drink made from a kind of pepper root that they ground up and um, mix with rainwater which gives you a bit of a kind of pleasantly sleepy narcotic effect you have very nice dreams and sleep very deeply afterwards sounds fun yeah people drink it New Zealand is stunning absolutely beautiful like hands down the best most beautiful place I've seen um, I went to this, the fjords in the southwest, Milford Sound in particular is absolutely gorgeous like stunningly, stunningly beautiful I can't tell you how nice it was I've never been in a country where just driving along, I wanted to take my camera out the window and take as many pictures as possible because it was so nice and, I so mean, nice it, it's, it's not, like because it's got all of Middle Earth in it hasn't it basically. essentially, I did go to it most of it as well and it really does look like that yeah. It's not just like they're not putting filters on or anything in the film. It looks like that. Are they cl- is it close together, though, all of the stuff, or is it quite long to get um, around? They're all dotted around, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I managed to... And the trouble is in New Zealand, especially in the South Island, you really need a car to get around. I was doing right. a lot of hitchhiking there because you can't get around without any form of motorised transport. There's, New Zealand is the same size as Japan. Japan has 80 million people, and New Zealand has five. There's one million on the South Island, which is about the size of England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's pretty sparsely populated, and yeah. like, everything's quite far apart. It's gorgeous. And I mean, and sparsely populated is also what Australia is as well. Yes, very much so. Australia, it was weird because I think I spent three weeks in New Zealand loving it, and then I went to Australia, and I was just—I'd seen so much scenery, I was burned out. I'd seen so many beaches. Like, all well, the beaches are nice. It's mostly gum trees and desert. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I didn't enjoy Australia as much as I was hoping to. I suppose. It's hard. It is hot, and, and it was it was summertime it? actually. Thing, yeah, it? it's not as varied. I went up north to Brisbane, and Brisbane isn't even that far north. It was very humid. Then I went south to Sydney, which I really liked actually. And Canberra, I had a really nice time in Canberra. There's not much to do in Canberra, but I had a friend I was staying with, and it was just a lovely little town to kind of ride bikes around, basically, yeah. do stuff. And then to Melbourne, then I flew off to Singapore. So Singapore was only very day, and it was crazy and expensive. Um, and then I headed to Malaysia, which was also crazy in a very different way, but less expensive. So that's Malaysia I found really interesting because it's so multicultural. It's basically an amalgam of three or four different cultures all kind of pushed together and having to coexist, having to deal with things. You have the, the Chinese population, Indian population, the Malay population, which is essentially a cross between the Indian and Chinese population. And then you have some kind of expats, whites wandering around still, basically. Um, <laughs> But it's just. Uh, I was like, are you It's a really interesting country. Around us. Yeah. Fascinating food as well. Like the, the, the cuisine there, because it's so multicultural, different elements and spices from different types of cuisines all mixed together. So good. Some of the best food I've ever had. Yeah. And Japanese food, don't get me wrong, the food in Japan is phenomenal as well. Yeah. But the food in Malaysia was something else. So. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's recommend. Like, get, if you're going far, far enough away, the, the kind of reference point kind of amazing to me this is happening there are people literally walking well it's uh, a park it is true <laughs> like walking into me I didn't think that was going to happen sort of sitting in an open space uh, yeah um, <laughs> sorry Malaysia yeah. food good yeah yes. I mean you go far enough away that kind of 
all the staples are different. That's the thing, that, and that, that makes food very interesting. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I learned how to eat curry with my hands, which is harder than you'd think, actually, because to eat the rice with your hands, you have to compress the rice into one hand and kind of push it into your mouth with your thumb. And I've been eating with my hands for 31 years, and I still didn't really know how to do it properly. So that was really odd, like having to, mo back to motor control and motor learning again, having to learn a new skill with something I've been using for years and years. Yeah. So. <laughs> and I mean, like, I guess during your travels, your, you know, your interests have not gone away. Like, no. What you're interested in. I mean, have you learned anything about your kind of areas of interest through your travels? Like, like well, the thing is, the motor control stuff. I think one of the reasons I left was that I just wasn't passionate about it anymore. I mean, I'm interested in it. Yeah. I think it's fun, really cool, some really cool problems and fun stuff, but I don't feel a burning need to answer these questions. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of searching really for something to want to answer. You know, right. I, I, I find these questions go, oh, that's a really interesting question. I hope somebody else answers it rather than, oh, I wonder how I can answer it, which is what you need to be a scientist. Yeah. Right. And to be honest. It's, it, don't be a scientist unless you're passionate about it because it's a rubbish job otherwise like, you only do it because you care yeah it's the same um, with being an artist yeah like, exactly that's exactly. the rule like it, yeah, do, don't do it for anything any, anything apart yeah. from the fact that you love it exactly it's, exactly. it's not worth it otherwise no it, re it really isn't and because it's, it's, it's the trouble with science as well is it's so tedious and at the end of it you could come out and find that the, you didn't find anything and unless you love it and really want to find out why you didn't find anything then that's incredibly demoralising also this tradition of course is tearing everyone's work apart so that becomes also fun and, and kind of demoralising in some ways good in some ways because it makes you go oh right I need to improve on this and this and this yeah. but it still is not easy to deal with colleagues and friends saying okay that paragraph is terrible and doesn't really explain what you're talking about oh you did these stats wrong maybe you should go back and check your stuff you know it's 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 necessary yeah. and it's useful but it's certainly not fun <laughs> well this is it I mean the, the, I feel like like the, the older I get as well like like when when you're sort of younger, or you sort of hear these ideas of like science versus art, like there's some kind of uh, no such thing. conflict. There isn't a conflict. <laughs> no such thing. I mean, originally scientists and artists were the same people. Well, like, I like to think that I am. Yeah, philosophy <laughs> is both art and science. But but also, it's, the, the process that you're talking about, peer review, is yeah. very much the process that you have when you're writing a novel and yeah. you give it to lots of people Absolutely. and you get their notes. Absolutely. And it's not easy to take, but it's necessary no. to take. I mean, and the, then, yeah. the only difference is that in science, you're trying to find out how the world actually works. Yeah. Um, whereas in art, you're trying to express something that's usually usually pretty internal or pretty personal. Possibly, um, yeah. And the way that's interpreted by other people is less objective. So in science, it's like, well, I did this experiment, I found these things, and that means that. Yeah. And if it doesn't mean that, people can say that doesn't mean that, because it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas in art, you say, well, I, I, looked, at, I looked at this kind of... Uh, I looked at this tree, for example, and, and I saw the light shining through it, and I decided I would <laughs> sketch this out and like draw this thing, I think it represents this to me. Yeah. And people can't say, oh, it doesn't represent that to you, that's wrong. That's right. Because it does. <laughs> that's the point. No, that's true. I mean, it's a bit more subjective. My, my, my friend uh, Tim, who I went to university with, who's a theoretical physicist, he, he always used to like laugh at us because, like, like, a first for a, in an arts based subject, yeah. like 70%, yeah. like, that's, a, that's a good mark. Whereas he's like, I always get, like, I get regularly get 100% because yeah. there's definitely right yeah. or wrong answers, and I've definitely. But you can also get zero. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. You can definitely get zero. I had a lot of friends. Yeah, exactly. I had a lot of friends who got zero in physics or in some questions, certainly, because if you get it wrong, you get it wrong. That's yeah, as simple yeah. as that. But the whole art science thing, I mean, that comes from the two cultures, the C.P. Snow kind of. He uh, wrote a book about the two cultures, arts and science. I don't think they're that different. Um, I don't think they need to be that different. No. I've been a musician since I was five. Right. Um, my grand was a piano teacher. Um, this is the same grand who died when I. Um, just when I'd arrived in Canada. She was a piano teacher. My dad was a folk musician for years and years. My family's kind of odd in many ways. But I grew up playing the piano and then later the violin, as I said, and then played the guitar when I was a teenager. And later on, I started singing. I've been doing lots of choral singing, loads of choral work um, and musical theatre. Started my own theatre company. All that stuff. And it's like saying, oh, you have to be arts, you have to be science. No, you don't. No, exactly. No, you don't. Do what you want. So I'm really, life. I'm really interested in physics. I mean, I'm really physics like, is brilliant. You, know, you should I'm, be. I am, and I, and, I, yeah. and, I, and you know, a lot of the like reading I do, like when I have, have time to read, will be physics stuff. Like. The thing with me is, I'm not because I've kind of read it, um, and of course, there's there's interesting stuff on the on the boundaries, on the fringes of it, but. Having done it for four years, it's like, well, I know most of it. I'd probably pick it up again if I needed to, like, figure out. Oh, they've done this. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm bad. I'm bad for it because because I'm because I'm coming from a, like the, 
the other side of the, yeah, of the thing. I, I, I'm interested in it, kind of metaphor, like the metaphors that are within it for like the human condition. Absolutely. Like. So, like for me, it, it's not. A, yeah, it's, it's like yeah. The more I learn about physics, in a way, the more I learn about myself. Well, physics. It's important to remember that physics is only a description. And it's only a human description of how the best way we understand the universe. Yeah. It's not this, It's not the universe. No. Physics is not how the universe works. Physics is the best way we can come up with to figure out how to explain to ourselves and each other how the universe works. Yeah, right. And that's that's the thing that you've got to bear in mind all the time. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's always big debates in, say, the mathematical community whether mathem- mathematics is kind of was it discovered or was it revealed? So it's, it's like is is it something is mathematics something that exists or is it something that we've kind of made to to answer questions well, essentially there, there is an argument the, the argument I guess is that, that maths is as close as you can get to an objective truth like one plus one does definitely equal two well yes and no it <laughs> does as long as you define your universe at the start which is what math does basically right, right, it says in this universe we'll let there be integers which behave this way and do these things and then you can do things based on that and the really fun thing in maths the hard thing about maths is then you've got to say things like, well, why are there integers that behave like that? How does that work? Yeah. And go down to the... It, it's like... I've heard it described, it's like trying to build a house, and you put the first floor in first, yeah. and then you put the stairs into the attic, and you put you do some furniture... You, just, you put a window in the attic, <laughs> and you go down to the ground floor and put the door in, and then maybe later on you go and build the foundations. Um, because <laughs> it's, it's not like you start here and then you go on from there, because you have to know, how, how did you start there? You just decided you were starting there. Maths is not my strongest point. It's definitely not mine. If, but if, if there's anything that, that stops me from it being, it can seem in, very esoteric to me. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing that stops me from from having stopped me from for years for having a kind of inroad to physics was the fact that I didn't have maths. But yeah. when I went to university, I did a, a course called uh, "The Universe is an Art," nice. uh, which was physics for artists. It was taught by the physics Without department. Maths. For the, yeah, <laughs> no maths. So yeah. It was great. Well, it's the, a shame the only thing so... I got a first in. Really? <laughs> yeah, Fantastic. Uh, oh, yeah. People are so scared of maths, though, and that's really sad because if you can do just a bit, then it just makes everything so great. Like, if you could learn anything in your life, any two things, I would say. Learn calculus and programming. <laughs> programming is very important now. Like, well, yeah. calculus is very important. People don't realise how important calculus is because calculus is just learning about how things change and ra- rates of change, basically. If you can do that, there's a lot of things you can understand that you wouldn't be able to understand without it. So you so much in, say, things like financial modelling. So obviously, in modelling, in science, um, in any scientific discipline, in, in physics, in chemistry, biology, all sorts of different things. Mathematics, of course. You can. There's, there's not many skilled fields of employment where some calculus wouldn't be useful. And programming, of course, is just phenomenally useful all the time. If you can write your own scripts to do things that... You can automate stuff, and you can figure out what code is doing, and how to make it do things. Oh, Douglas, so cool! Douglas Rushkoff quote, like I think it's the name of his book actually, like "Program or Be Programmed." Like, <laughs> and, and, and that's the thing. Like I think we're using all this software, and we don't know how it how it works. How it works. Yes, we're just yeah. we're just using the interface. Agreed. Yes. And, and, and for me, I mean, I know how. Yeah. I use the interface because it's easy. Yeah, yeah. But if I want, like, this is why I quite like having a Mac. Because um, the nice thing about Macs is they have a pretty interface, but if you want, you can open up the Unix core and go play Power User and type things in the command line and fix things, do things at a low level if you really want it. Yeah. If you understand how it works. But that's the key thing, understanding that's how it, it works. Understanding so. it. That's a funny thing. That's funny. I mean, yeah, because I was always attracted to algebra rather than, rather than calculus. Yeah. Um, which is funny because well, algebra is important. Yeah, no, as no. well, and it's, it's. I mean, it's. Yeah, to do calculus, you have to understand algebra. So it's, calculus is built on algebra. Yeah, for sure. No, no, sure. Um, but but I mean, for some reason, numbers I have harder time with than than, than letters. I think. Yeah, so I guess you've been all all around the world. I mean, it's not taken you very long. No. I guess. Doesn't um, these days? No, I could do it in a couple of days if I wanted to. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I you mean, I'm on a plane. Just on a plane, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. And so I guess that's amazing done, but yeah. less amazing than it would have been like 50 years ago when yeah, it would have meant sure. that you were like Absolutely. Phileas Fogg Absolutely. having to go around or whatever. Yeah, um, hot air balloons. And stuff. It's it's a lot easier these days. I'm quite happy with it being easier. That's fine. Yeah, I mean, great. I the longest trip I did was a 26-hour bus ride from Denver, Colorado to uh, Kennewick, Washington, which started at 1 a.m. That sucked. I'm yeah. not gonna lie, that was that's, horrible. That's never. Fun. <laughs> I don't recommend it. You you wake up in the in, on a bus somewhere with strangers in the middle of Wyoming, 
which is a horrible state by the way, very boring. I'm sure Wyoming's lovely, but that bit of it was very dull. Yeah. And then you realise you've got another 20 hours to go. Yeah. And all the, the only places the bus stops are at McDonald's and like these tiny little strip malls outside of towns, like little towns in the middle of nowhere. And yeah, it was not a fun ride. But it's very cheap, $100. Well, that is good. That's very That's good. good value. Has it changed you going around the world? Has it changed the way you like look at things? In some ways. I mean, it's taught me to be a little bit more patient, I think, with little annoyances sometimes. I mean, I get depressed and anxious and frustrated sometimes and it's taught me to step back a little bit I think at least I try to and kind of not worry too much I met this guy when I was in Brisbane who had um, he said oh yeah I was in the Caribbean British guy I was in the Caribbean and a mate of mine said hey do you want to come on a boat with me he's like yeah where do you want to go he said oh I thought we'd go to Australia wow so they got on a two man boat and sailed to Australia in about over about the course of about six weeks wow and there's just the two of them and they had literally a 50 kilometer radio which is nothing they'd have been screwed if anything happened they saw one boat the entire time waved at it didn't, didn't see him and yeah he said the most important thing I learned from that trip is just have no expectations and just do things as they as they come really that's good and it's a I think it's an important thing if you can do it it's yeah. a very hard thing to do because you've always got expectations you've always got an idea in your mind about what something's going to be like and yeah. you know how much you're going to enjoy doing this or um, yeah, yeah. or how much you're not going to enjoy doing something which can be a pleasant surprise sometimes yeah. but, um, if you try and go in with any, without any expectations it's not easy but you can try not to hope too much I think for the thing you want to happen that's really interesting or even not to hope too much for the idealised thing <laughs> that you've built up to be something amazing to happen because often you'll go into a situation and something completely different will happen See, that's really interesting to me because I, I, uh, I also get depressed and anxious yeah. about things and, and, and this project in itself is kind of almost a way of dealing with that anxiety and, sucks yeah Man. yeah anxiety, <laughs> anxiety really sucks no I yeah I, I think yeah I mean I'm not going to come it's like apples and pears isn't it but, yeah. but, but, but uh, apples and oranges that's what you're supposed to say but uh, still like, fruit is fine exactly <laughs> but there's more similarities between apples and pears I guess but then there are quite a lot of uh, similarities between anxiety and depression I think that well they're obviously they're very linked because a yeah. lot of us who have yeah. one have both certainly I get anxious and then I get depressed yeah. like as a result of the anxiety when I'm too worn out yeah. from the anxiety but anyway like this project of talking to people and being like in moments with people is exactly the kind of thing that you're talking about yeah. that you've got from going around the world it's, it's like when I'm with somebody the conversation happens it's like a zen yeah, thing exactly. the conversation's going to happen enjoy the moments that them. happen because they won't happen again yeah. like, I've had some great little moments that have just happened when randomly without thinking about it I've had some times that have been less good like I was in South Korea for three weeks after Japan sorry two weeks after Japan for a month and I, I knew I was going back to the UK and I was just tired and kind of grumpy and I just wanted to come home and see people and not have to learn another new language because I'd learned katakana and hiragana which are two of the Japanese syllabaries there are three yeah, right. um, and they're pretty easy to learn but hiragana is the one which basically is for Japanese words so unless you know any Japanese it's useless katakana is the one that represents western, western words so that's a bit more fun but I just learned all these syllabaries and then left Japan and then I went to Korea which has another whole new set of syllabaries um, syllabary type language so I learned that one as well and I didn't know any Korean either and I was like, oh, I'm so tired of kind of having to meet new people all the time and plan where I'm going to stay in a couple of days and all this stuff. And when I finally came back to England, it was like a huge weight was lifted off me. I was rough for the first few days because I had just flown in, basically. I think I met you like four days after I'd flown back. Yeah, you just, Korea. I think you'd come to was London it, was that it, was day. It, you had like a bag. Was it the Thursday? Yeah, it was the yeah, Thursday. Yeah, because I flew in on the Tuesday morning. Yeah. And that night I didn't have anywhere to stay. <laughs> right. So I came to the um, to the gig with a yeah with a the band. gig basically with all my stuff and I found some of my stuff which was nice and made a good friend and that was great. So but yeah I was it was rough to begin with but it's been so nice just to see people again friends and family and catch up with people and speak a language I understand it's useful yeah and walk around without looking too much like a tourist which is also useful yeah and it's great actually because after a month in the UK I'm now kind of like oh. I go travelling again now I go to Iceland for a while and then go to North America that's good like, yeah, just you sort of recharge your batteries yeah it's been I think it was really worth doing to be honest I think I would have I don't know where I would have been if I'd have been somewhere else like for a month well my original plans was to fly into Berlin and see some friends there and like do a tour through Europe which would have been a bit easier in yeah. some ways but still like work still difficult 
um, I think this was a good choice in the end to come yeah. home. Yeah, so. it's good to come home as it well as go. It's always good to come home. As, as well, well, my as parents and I are moving to France, which is hilarious. So <laughs> they're going to rent their house out in Yorkshire and uh, move to Burgundy. So that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you've got friends here, though. Oh, yeah, plenty. I mean, I was just thinking the other day, I've spent more time in London than any other place in the UK in the last three years, and I've never lived here. Yeah, it's funny how that happens. Here. Yeah, it's funny how that happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, everybody ends up here, like, I think. At least for a bit. Like, for a bit. People don't always stay, but yeah. yeah. People pass through this city. That's one of the things I like about it, too, because I'm not originally from London. Yeah. You're right, all my friends are here. And, you know, the other thing about becoming... Oh, I'm not sure. It's, it's flashed with now recording, but it still seems to be continuing where it, from where it was. So that's okay, fine. Good. Nice uh, little random words to confuse me. But the like the other thing about being 30 and 31 or whatever is like all the friends you made at university, they're all starting to get into yep. positions yeah, yeah, yeah. where they they actually have some kind of weight within the world, like whether it's family yeah. or, or careers or whatever. And that's kind of daunting in yeah, some ways. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, isn't it? I've, I've, I've seen the same thing. But the other... I've got friends who are starting to get lectureships. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 People who are like proper jobs, proper <laughs> adults. All of these proper adults. My brother is spending £15,000 on a loft conversion. <laughs> well, yeah, the, I know. This is the other thing. <laughs> but but, 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 but it, it is daunting, especially if you're not like I've... Like, like I, I've never... I've certainly not got a career. Although I guess things are starting to work for me. So maybe I should, yeah. I st- I've got to change my own mental view of myself. But, but, like, it's daunting, but it also starts to become useful. Do you know what I mean? Like, it yeah. starts to become, oh, I've got a friend who actually can help with that. Yes. Whereas when you're sort yes. of 20, you've got friends. Yeah. No, no, no one can help anybody else. No experience, else. no training. And now suddenly you know a lot of people with experience and training in different areas, which is yeah. very cool. For me, I was talking about money earlier while I was travelling, and one of the things I've been doing while travelling is editing as I've been going. Because the nice thing about editing is you can do it from anywhere. And a good friend of mine in London is an editor, and... Uh, actually, she works for uh, Gov.uk right now, but she still does some freelance editing stuff. And she said, well, you know, you, you've got a PhD. There's, there's plenty of companies that pay top dollar, basically, for your expertise in editing scientific papers. Because it turns out there's a lot of scientists in the world who are very good scientists but don't speak English very well, or don't write English very well specifically. And any scientist will groan um, because they've had to read through these terrible papers. Of good science, but awful presentation. Right. So a lot of the scientists will pay editing companies to find experts for them who will go through their papers, like English-speaking natives, who go through their papers and correct all the, the bad spelling and right. terrible wording and article use. Um, a lot of those people are based in Japan because Japanese is so differently structured to English. They have two tenses, a present tense and a past tense. Um, there are no articles, no a, no the. They don't really do plurals. And the, probably the worst thing is they don't really... What those? I'm terrible at English grammar. I'm good at, I'm good at editing oh. it, but I'm terrible at knowing the, the words for things. What li- Little words that go between words. Uh, connect- Conjunctions? Conjunctions. I don't know. Prepositions? If, if, my, I don't if know. my girlfriend was here, yeah, I'm sure she, she, did, she did English language, so she has the, right. the science, the science element to yeah. the language, which I, I lack. I, I've read so much stuff. I mean, I'm very, very good at editing. I just can't remember what the, the yeah. words are called. You, 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 you understand how it works, but yeah, you can't. Exactly. You haven't got the descriptions. Um, and, and so there's a lot of call for that kind of work. And that's great because it turns out that I can do that while I'm travelling and I can actually make money while I'm travelling and sit in coffee shops in Japan or bars in Korea and, or in London, which is what I was doing today, and do editing work and yeah. then send it off because everyone's got Wi-Fi these days. Yeah. I don't need to be based anywhere. I can just wander. Yeah, well, yeah, so I so guess you, nice. you can carry on travelling the world for the rest of your life and also do the science. I probably won't. No. Um, <laughs> one of the things I have learned started thinking about is oh wow stability is quite nice isn't it i had never thought about that how nice that is yeah i I was feeling in a way that i'm kind of sweeping through people's lives like having a walk-on part in their play like it's a play of their life and i'm kind of coming on saying a few lines and then wandering off pursued by a bear and it's a really odd feeling like they're kind of settled and sorted at least in the medium term and i'm just kind of going oh this is cool this stuff you're doing awesome well see you next time and heading off again so I think I would like that again. I would like a space where I stay for a while that I want to be in, that I have a job that is at least vaguely stable. I want books again. I miss books. I want a gaming rig. <laughs> I want board games. Board game nights and people to have them with. Yeah. And kind of a, a network of people. So I think that would be cool. <laughs> I would like that. Well, that's good. I'm, yeah. Uh, um, we'll see how that goes. I'm sure you can find that in, in 
Canada. I hope so. <laughs> people live there. I, well, I know, I, you know, I know people from Canada yeah. or in Canada who would be interested in that sort of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the last question that I ask people is, do you have anything to plug? Which is a, it's a strange <laughs> question. Some people take it very metaphysical, weirdly, which surprises me. Other people are very, you know, uh, they're good specific about actually. it. Yeah. Anything to plug? Do stuff while you can, I guess. Because there's a fine line between can and can't, and you don't want to discover it on the wrong day. Right, I think. right. Very, very true. <laughs> that's really good. And that's one of the reasons that I did this now. I mean, even though I have spent some time travelling being depressed, and being depressed while you're travelling sucks, because you're away from everyone, everywhere. Yeah. But looking back on it, I don't regret it, because I did get to see some incredible places, and I'm still going to see some incredible places, and I met some awesome people who I'm keeping in touch with. Facebook is incredible for that sort of thing, right? Yeah, right. I've had some great experiences. Do stuff while you can. Yeah, well, that's great. Even if you don't feel like you're enjoying it at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty right. I mean, did you? And you said you had a, you said you had a blog. That yes. You were writing, um, or... Yeah. If anyone's interested, actually, they can they can read my blog. Um, didn't really get on, onto a lot of topics I kind of talked about, like uh, rationality and reasoning, which is something I was starting to get interested in, in a more scientific way as opposed to a philosophical way. Right. Um, and, and how that works. And how that, yeah, essentially how that works. Like, and why we're bad at it. Because we're not. Yeah, like sure. why humans have all these cognitive biases, like, and why we succumb to them all the time, and even if we know about them, we still succumb to them. Yeah. We're just bad at this. Yeah. And I'd, I'd be interested to know why that happens. And so I was involved for a while. I'm still involved with a group in San Francisco called the Center for Applied Rationality, which is trying to train people out of these biases and see how that goes. And I was going to do some research for them. And that's, I might still do some research. I think that'd be interesting. That's right. But they, I was reading kind of one of the blogs that, that they members have written and uh, one of the statements kind of stood out for me it's like yeah you should try try and take joy in the merely real in the stuff that actually exists so I thought that was a nice little little way of putting things so I called my blog the merely real that's good well, that, it's good so, to have a story to help you remember yeah yeah and mostly I just put travel stuff on there but there's other stuff as well so a little bit about my life occasionally but not very much I read, I read a poem on it once it's a thing that happened yeah. <laughs> well, that's cool. Have well, joy we'll if you can. In a merely real. And uh, the last thing that I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. All right. Goodbye, audience. Thank you for listening. Yeah, goodbye. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app that you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.